0: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Hi, I'm Allison Frankel, and this is On the Case.
0: It will be my unyielding commitment to you, if confirmed, to see that the laws are enforced faithfully, effectively, and impartially. The Attorney General must hold everyone, no matter how powerful, accountable. No one is above the law, and no American will be beneath its
1: protection. No powerful special interests will cower this department. All I can say this, our Justice Department and our FBI, at the top of each, because inside they have incredible people, but our Justice Department and our FBI have to start doing their job and doing it right and doing it now because people are angry. People are angry. What's happening is a disgrace. And at some point, I wanted to stay out. But at some point, if it doesn't straighten out properly, I want them to do their job. I will get involved and I'll get in there if I have to. Disgraceful. Back in January 2017, when Jeff Sessions went to the Senate to be confirmed as Donald Trump's attorney general, Sessions promised senators that he would not be a rubber stamp. That was his word, that he would not be a rubber stamp for the president. Jeff Sessions said that attorney generals must be fair and impartial, and he promised that he would uphold what he called the rule of law. In the million years since then, Okay, it's only been 21 months, but I'm sure it feels like a million years to our beleaguered attorney general. President Trump has sorely tested Sessions' promise to remain independent. The president has repeatedly called for the Justice Department to investigate potential political influence in the Russia probe. He has demanded investigations of Hillary Clinton and other Democrats. He has targeted specific Justice Department officials in his Twitter feed and has criticized prosecutors for bringing cases against his political allies. He has even gone against warnings from the FBI and ordered the declassification of selected Russia probe documents. The president and his lawyers say all of this is fine because the U.S. Constitution gives the president power over the entire executive branch and the Justice Department is in the executive branch. So according to this theory, The president can do whatever he wants when it comes to federal prosecution. Trump has even said that he himself cannot be investigated for interfering with the Justice Department because of his constitutional authority. Joining me here today to talk about all this is Rebecca Roife, a law professor at New York Law School. Rebecca isn't just a law prof. She is also a trained historian with a PhD from the University of Chicago. Rebecca has just co-authored an unbelievably timely law review article that's entitled, Can the President Control the Justice Department? Hi, Rebecca.
0: Hi, nice to be here.
1: Well, thanks for coming. So first question, can the president (laughs) control the Justice Department?
0: So the president is right about something, which is that the Department of Justice is within the executive and the president is the chief executive. As chief executive, the president can set broad policy objectives for the Department of Justice and for prosecution in general, but the president cannot control individual prosecutions. That's the conclusion that, uh, that, that, is, that we draw in that paper. Okay.
1: He can fire individual prosecutors, but... He can
0: hire and fire the Attorney General and other high up officials within the Department of Justice, as well as the United States attorneys who operate within different jurisdictions in the United States. But hiring and firing does not necessarily mean that you can control the discretionary decisions that those individuals make. So, in other words, you could set a big policy agenda as this president has, like we are going to um, go after marijuana prosecutions in a way that our predecessor did not. We are going to focus on immigration and immigration violations in the way that previous administrations have not. But to interfere in an individual case is more problematic. Um, And it's more problematic because it really involves those cases ought to be driven by law and fact things that prosecutors are trained to do. They're trained to find the facts, be impartial about those facts, and apply the law in a particular kind of way. And if the president or anybody within the um, White House or with political incentives were to interfere in those cases, it would be um, extremely problematic.
1: Okay. But so just to be contrarian, when the founding fathers drafted the Constitution, they didn't say any of that, right? Absolutely not. The um, <laughs> the Constitution is completely silent
0: about that. A couple of things about that. First of all, the Constitution is silent about a lot of things, and I don't think you can necessarily draw conclusions from the fact that something isn't in there. But second of all, it's entirely possible that the people who drafted the Constitution and the following amendments just took for granted the fact that prosecutors were independent of the president. The reason why that would have been the case is that federal prosecutions, first of all, it was a far smaller amount of federal crimes than there are now. So really, there wasn't much federal prosecution to start with. And second of all, the people who brought those prosecutions were largely either private individuals or, counterintuitively, state officials. So there were district attorneys who brought some of the cases, but even they were in these remote locations that even if the president had wanted to kind of meddle in individual cases or affect individual cases, it would have been virtually impossible for him to do that on a practical level. So um, I think it just wasn't in there. They, they weren't anticipating the situation that we're in now or even that we were in shortly after the Constitution
1: was drafted. So silence In that case doesn't necessarily mean that it was sort of a tacit approval of the idea that the president can can control who gets prosecuted and for what
0: no not at all and in fact in the first draft of the um Uh, of the Judiciary Act, which was essentially established, the attorney general. There wasn't a Department of Justice, but there was an attorney general. And in that act, the first draft of it had all prosecutors being appointed by the court. So it wasn't even clear that the prosecution was going to be an executive function at the time. I think it just wasn't a particular concern, the the one that we've sort of
1: stumbled into at the moment. Okay. So there's a lot of talk about this concept of the rule of law, and um, we are not a nation of, of men, we are a nation of laws, what exactly does that mean? So essentially,
0: in a democracy, the people who are in power or the party who's in power don't get unlimited power. Um, they, like everybody else, are subject to a set of laws that are enacted by the people and by the people's representatives. So essentially, that's the concept of the rule of law. The concern is if the, those individuals and if the party wasn't subjected to these laws like everybody else, then they would um, – they could do a number of things like essentially eliminate their opposition, um, keep power indefinitely, or um, or essentially destroy the function, the institutions that create a democracy to start with. And so essentially they would become what the um, revolution was designed to fight against, that kind of autocracy, that kind of dictatorship and control, remote control that was the most important thing to our founders and 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 what they stood for. So the rule
1: of law is really essential to to what America stands for. Okay, so the so when that's sort of shorthand for the idea that one person doesn't bring the force of government to bear on his or her own behalf or against enemies, whether they're political enemies or any other kind of enemies.
0: Absolutely. That's 100 percent true. And there's another flip side of it. And sometimes when people focus on these issues, they sort of they're focusing on just a couple of things like the Mueller investigation or the Michael Cohen prosecution. But this really has to do with prosecutions at every different level. Prosecutions are meant it's people's liberty that are at stake. And the founders were very concerned about preventing the arbitrary um, Denial or, or 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 infringement of that liberty, and so what they did was establish these um, mechanisms to prevent that from happening. And one of those things is prosecutors, and what they do, they they basically by just what I said by um, finding facts and being devoted to that and applying law in an even-handed way without. Um, without thought about their own personal gain or partisan political advantage. They only bring these cases. And obviously, sometimes prosecutors mess up and don't do that. But that is the principle that is essential to democracy that plays at these top levels and also all the way down to
1: prosecutions that happen at all levels. Okay. So on this topic of what prosecutors are supposed to do, when was the Justice Department established like when did we when did we start having federal prosecutors and and what did Congress have to say about their independence when when we created the justice department?
0: yeah, so I mean just to be clear, there were federal prosecutors from the start. they were called district attorneys they're now called United States attorneys um, but Uh, they were first of all they were very diffused it was very hard to get from one place to another so they kind of just operated as their own little islands and um Gradually, as the federal criminal law became more dense, there were just more crimes, largely spurred by the Civil War, that there just became much more things that the federal government was responsible for prosecuting. So what are some examples? Like what became a federal crime that hadn't existed? I mean, for instance, there were the Civil Rights Acts. Those are sort of the most famous. But they're basically all sorts of things that the federal government just started to become involved in. There were also in the, um, there were beginning to be kind of regulations about, you know, there is before prohibition, but there were regulations having to do with morals that were sort of started to be um, taken over by the federal government, all sorts of things. Um, So when that happened there, it became really unwieldy because there were prosecutors all throughout the federal government. There were these district attorneys, but there were also people who were operating within different agencies who were prosecuting certain kinds of crime and They were all over the place. It was really disorganized. And not only was it inefficient, it was also extremely corrupt. And so there were um, there were. Congressmen who were concerned about the corruption and the waste, and they basically said, "Well, all these department heads are just using these prosecutors to basically go after their political enemies and make sure that they can maintain power." Exactly what the rule of law, in and is supposed to prevent from happening. So the idea was, let's consolidate all these this legal arm of the government. Let's consolidate it in one department. And that in and of itself will ensure that this corruption is stopped. the reason why is there's this increased faith during this period of time in professionalism and expertise. And the idea is if we just get all these people together, um, it will allow them to develop and apply this expertise, this legal expertise and experience in prosecution to do what it's supposed to be done, as opposed to becoming a kind of additional tool that politicians are using to get their way and to keep their power. And so the Department of Justice was born essentially out of this desire to insulate prosecutors from political corruption. Now, to be fair, they weren't again in 1870 thinking so much about the president because it just hadn't become so much of a problem. It had happened on occasion that a president was trying to use the Department of Justice in an individual case, but it just wasn't a kind of broad issue the way it became later on. Um, So The concern was about political corruption, but political corruption coming from department heads. And so consolidating the Department of Justice under the executive was a way of preserving this independence and creating this independence so that prosecutors could do what they were supposed to do, which was be fair and even-handed.
1: But Congress, even though they were worried about this political interference, they also didn't Assure independence of the prosecutor in the statute, right? Again, no, and um, I really think that it came
0: from a sense that the best way to ensure against corruption was through professionalism and expertise. And it's hard to explain because you kind of have to transport yourself back into a different <laughs> moment when people really thought that the way that you protect against that is through experts. That And now we kind of don't trust experts and they, you know, whatever, they, they have their own interests or we believe that experts aren't so neutral. Mm-hmm. But back then they really had faith in that concept. And so, it was sort of implicit in, in this, that that was what was going on.
1: Right. So so prosecutorial training was a big idea. And in a way, we kind of rely on the whole idea of lawyers as this special category of, of people, right? I mean, was regard for lawyers different in those days?
0: I don't know. I mean, there were a lot of corrupt lawyers back then, too, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, it, 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 but Yes, I think that there was an ideal that was out there that was more um, honored than it is now. And I think, you know, what: there were bad lawyers and there were good lawyers then, and there are bad lawyers and there are good lawyers now. But then there was more of a faith that we can achieve this professional class of people who will keep us safe from the kind of corruption that can happen in party politics. And that was something that is, you know, after the 60s and 70s, nobody really thinks that way anymore. But we're still stuck with a system that depends on it so and I don't think it's a bankrupt notion I think that professionals really can act that way and prosecutors can as well and
1: our system really depends on it so I hope that's true (laughs) so the Justice Department gets established we have this kind of faith in professionals we go along for a hundred years and then Richard Nixon comes along how did Richard Nixon test the idea of the rule of law So there were
0: two instances in which Richard Nixon really tested this idea of the independence of prosecutors and the independence of the Department of Justice. The first of those has been colloquially referred to as the Saturday Night Massacre. So what happened was um, there had been a special counsel appointed, Archibald Cox, who was appointed to investigate these various allegations about what was going on in the Watergate scandal. And he he was appointed by the Justice Department? Right. The special prosecutor is gathering more and more evidence, making the president increasingly uncomfortable. The president tries to, uh, uh, what all comes to this head at at a particular moment on this Saturday night where the president um, orders his attorney general to fire Archibald Cox. And So Elliot Richardson, who is his attorney general, says no (laughs) and is fired. William Ruckelhaus, who is the deputy, takes his position. The president orders William Ruckelhaus to do the same thing. William Ruckelhaus refuses uh, and is also fired. And then um, finally, Robert Bork is appointed and um, does uh, fire Archibald Cox. Robert Bork then, incidentally, appoints a new special prosecutor, uh, and the new special prosecutor continues with the investigation.
1: So, when you look at that, do you do you look at that and say, okay, so the system gets bent and tested and you know put through a fire and comes out okay, or do you look at it and say? Oh my god, there's a president who sh- is showing you that that the rule of law can be broken.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I look at it in a way in both ways as did everybody at the time. So, right after Watergate there was this huge uproar that a president would ever do something like this. That again, the The law department, that justice itself is supposed to operate in its own way because this is a democracy and even those at the top level are subject to these laws that everybody else is subject to. That's just a first principle of democracy. And so people were shocked and upset that this had happened. At the same time, there were some other people who kept saying, yes, it's shocking and it's upsetting that a president would ever do this, but look how well things stood up. And you know, there was sort of a back and forth because some people were very concerned and thought we needed more structural protection for our Department of Justice. And other people said, no, look, prosecutors themselves are the protection. Look at these professionals and what they did. And in fact, both sides are right. I mean, this was an incredible assault. It was a dangerous moment. It was a moment that people look to where they think, you know, this is a fault line of democracy was crumbling and could have crumbled. You know, thankfully, it came up OK. But, you know, it <laughs> could have all fallen to pieces yeah. at this moment. Yeah. And then, you know, there and so there were these hearings or these two particular views were were basically articulated because some people had said, you know what, we need like a, a statute saying Department of Justice is completely separate yeah. from our president. So this will never, ever happen again. And then All these people who are, you know, statesmen and and old congressmen and people who had been attorney generals and, you know, people who you've sort of heard of in American history, all these people came before Congress and gave testimony and said, you know, in the end, or many of them, and in fact, most of them, in the end, what we have is these professional values preventing this from happening. Look at how it played out. Um, Look at how all of these people kept um, kept acting in accord with those professional values and when i say professional values i mean prosecutors who are thinking no one's above the law and who are thinking we're gonna apply this law regardless of its political consequences right right? that's the value that's what's at stake and and in the end what 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 all these people said right after watergate is we have those norms and those norms are really really strong and they've protected us up till now and they will continue to protect us
1: yeah i think i mean i guess the outcry was so loud that that congress made this ended up making this assumption well see the people the people care about rule of law the people care about prosecutors being independent so we don't we don't need to we don't need to write it into into new laws. That's what Congress was thinking. What? Where is the Supreme Court in all this? As as you know, Congress is kind of figuring out how independent prosecutors should be. What does the pre- Supreme Court have to say? So the Supreme Court hasn't directly
0: decided the question about the Department of Justice and who control whether the president has complete control over the Department of Justice. But they have said several things that I think support the position that the Department of Justice is not directly answerable in individual cases to the president. So there were two important cases in the 1920s and 30s. They both happened to involve the postmaster general. um, And that's, I think, just because the postmaster general did a lot (laughs) of what federal government, everything was like, everything was done by the postmaster. (laughs) Anyway, so the first case, um, there had been a statute that suggested that the president had no power to fire the postmaster general. And the Supreme Court struck that statute down. But in striking it down, they said, look, the power to hire and fire doesn't necessarily involve the power to direct individual decisions. Uh, And there was a long discussion of that in the case. The second case, about 10 years later, um, had to do with the president actually trying to direct the postmaster general. So there was a a statute. What
1: was he he trying him to... Trying to direct so, uh,
0: there was like a statute that said the postmaster general had to pay some money out to individual people and the postmaster general had not paid the right amount. And oh I think gosh. that was just because the postmaster general was like running out of money. Who knows what happened? <laughs> the background is probably interesting. But anyway, so then um, the president just came in and was like, look, you've got to pay this money to these particular people. And the postmaster general refused. Somehow this got tested all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, look, president. You cannot go tell him how to do his job. You can fire him. You have the constitutional power to take care that the laws are faithfully ex- executed. That is in the Constitution. And that involves an ability to hire and fire certain, certain executive officials, not all of them, but certain officials. Postmaster general, for sure. But it doesn't mean that you have the right to direct their individual decisions in individual cases. If you don't like what they're doing, the way to take care that the laws are faithfully executed is to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. That way, the public can see what you're doing because otherwise, you're like meddling in these individual cases and we may never find out, right? Okay, so those are the two cases in the 1920s and 1930s. And then we come to the Nixon administration. And Nixon had challenged the right of the special counsel, Archibald Cox, to subpoena his tapes. The tapes would obviously help prove the crimes that ultimately comprised Watergate.
1: So, the ta- And the tapes were, were secret recordings? They were secret, he-
0: right. Secret recordings that he uh, was in the practice of creating all the time. So they had tons of information. Anyway, so the special prosecutor really wanted those tapes. And Subpoenaed them, and the president claimed that he did not have to comply with the subpoena. There were a couple of ways in which he made that argument. One was the executive privilege. So he said, "No, we have executive privilege. We don't have to turn them over." The second argument he made is related to our point because he said, "Look, as chief executive, mm-hmm. I have total control over the Department of Justice, so I don't have to listen to your subpoena." Um, this might sound familiar. Um, so, <laughs> so the court did not decide the question of whether or not he controls the Department of Justice in deciding this case. The Supreme Court said, you got to turn over those tapes and said, you got to turn over those tapes and you do not have executive privilege. So that's the basis on which that case was decided. And I, and the court, as courts do, they decide on narrower grounds. So they didn't approach that broader question. Um, but there we are. Um, those Those are the Supreme Court cases that we have that you know, give you precedent, if not binding authority for that fact that the president doesn't have full control over. But basically,
1: so looking, you know, looking at what does the Constitution say? What has Congress said? What has the Supreme Court said? We have strong indicators that everybody wants prosecutors to act on their own without the president telling them exactly what they're supposed to do. But we don't have, we don't have it, sort of set in stone anywhere, right? And it
0: is, it is not set in stone anywhere. I think that you can, these are puzzle pieces, and right. I think when you put them together, honestly, my view is that they amount to, they equal, uh, a conclusion that is the president does not have this power. The implications of the other view are so dire and so bad. For our country, that it can't possibly, I think that this document, the Constitution, our laws, the structure of our government can't mean that. So in addition to all these facts, all these clues, there's that you know sense that we've had this principle developed and getting stronger throughout our history. It can't be that our government is structured in such a way that it can be destroyed overnight. We've talked about
1: this before, but it's just so... It's like this nagging concern that yeah, it seems like that. It seems like it can't be. But there's this room. There's this there's this question mark at the very bottom of it. And and it seems like, you know, in in many of the things that our president has said, this question mark is a question mark. Um. Well,
0: I agree with you. And I think it's like, look, in, in these moments in history where norms are being broken, right. it's hard to then say norms are gonna save us. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, that's exactly essentially it. what I'm saying. Yeah. But um but again, I think the history helps because it the norm is not it's not that presidents haven't tried. <laughs> um they try to grab power and they try to use whatever to get power and they've often, or not often, but they have intermittently tried to use their attorneys general to get power in the same way as President Nixon did. Um, so it's that's not unusual. Um, however, these institutions have held up under that pressure. And I think they are, this is, the, we are now in a moment in which they are being tested, I would argue, even more than under the Nixon administration, but they are stronger than I think people realize. The institutions and these norms and the the professional practices are really very entrenched and really do offer a great deal of protection. I know it doesn't seem that way when you look at it, but my view, um, having looked at this throughout American history, is that
1: they're stronger than we think. Okay. So let's imagine that, and and we don't know what what um, the special counsel, the Justice Justice Department-appointed special counsel Robert Mueller is going to do about interviewing the president. We do know that the president's lawyers have floated publicly this idea that, um, that the president can't be forced to testify because he is in charge of the executive branch, and no one, n- no one in the Justice Department can force him to do something he doesn't want to do. We have, we have heard arguments that the president is free to, you know, to get rid of people, the Attorney General, uh, the Deputy Attorney General, who's overseeing the Special Counsel, the Special Counsel himself, that the Constitution gives him the right, the right to do that. If this comes to a head and ends up before the Supreme Court, what do you think will happen? So,
0: I mean, it depends a little bit on the makeup of the Supreme Court, how this issue is going to be decided. But I, you know, I think that the precedent is pretty strong. There's one case that we didn't discuss, which is the Morrison case, which came even after the Nixon administration. So that case had to do with a special prosecutor that had been created in the wake of um, in wake of watergate and it was a statute called the ethics and government act that essentially created a independent special counsel very independent really all the president could do was fire that person for cause and the supreme court upheld that statute and said congress can create prosecutors who are independent from the president so i think it is pretty clear after that case that congress could create a special prosecutor. The more complicated question is, well, what about when Congress
1: hasn't explicitly done that? So the Supreme Court would be left to kind of read these. Which is, I I should interrupt and say that's what the situation is that we have now. Mueller is not not working under some kind of a statutory authority. He is nominally part of the Justice Department.
0: So the Ethics and Government Act has been allowed to sunset by Congress, so there's no statute creating Mueller's job or any other special prosecutor. So, the question then is, well, what about what about when Congress hasn't said anything explicitly? Then what? And the way that the that the Supreme Court would look at it, I think, would be to say, well, how do we interpret the Department of Justice, the Act that created the Department of Justice Act in 1870, the one we were talking about? So you know, they would look at some of the things that I've spoken about, about why that act was created. And I I think that if they did a good job, that they would come to the same conclusion that if they haven't said that the president gets to, you know, meddle in individual decisions, then just like the postmaster general, the prosecutor is a the prosecutor has a position that is discretionary and they should be able to use their discretion and if the president disapproves then the president president thinks that the laws are not being
1: faithfully executed then the president can fire them. And he's said many times that that's on his mind so and it that, could come to that that right? is that would be
0: legitimate i yeah. mean if he wanted to do that then he could do that and nobody would question his power to do it but then it gets kicked back into a political question which is how much how upset would people be about that and i think he hasn't done it because he's aware that people would be upset about it that people would find that to be a step too far, that you, you know, there, there may be different understandings that people have about these questions that we're talking about. But I think fundamentally people understand that, you know, somebody's there doing a job and that if the president fires that person, then why is the president doing that, you know? And to answer that question, it's, you know, I mean, you could maybe say, oh, he thinks it's politically motivated or something like that. But, you know, if it's politically motivated, then he didn't do it. Then just let them do their job. It seems
1: like the public would be upset if that were to happen. We uh, yeah, may we, may we not find out. <laughs> um, and and one thing that's been interesting in the Mueller um, in the Mueller investigation is that he has he has kicked some cases out of the main Justice Department in Washington and out of his office to prosecutors in, you know, in individual U.S. attorney's offices. So if the president were to attempt to control these prosecutions, that would mean actually controlling individual U.S. attorney's offices as well, right? Yeah, I think that that's a really important point, that
0: there, this is not just one Attorney General, one special prosecutor. These are there are layers and layers of prosecutors who are doing their job and in one of those spin-off cases that you mentioned is the Michael Cohen case in the Southern District of New York where he pled guilty to the various bank tax fraud and campaign finance crimes.
1: Michael Cohen is the the president's old personal lawyer for for most of right. the most <coughs> of the years leading up to the campaign. Right.
0: One, um, he is, and he's often referred to as the president's fixer. But um, in the press conference, Robert Kuzami, who's the acting United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, who's responsible for that prosecution, said he talked about the crimes that he pled guilty to and the seriousness of those crimes. But he paused, and he took a quite a long period of time to talk about how prosecutors are doing their job, prosecutors are following the evidence, and... That they are pursuing prosecutions regardless of politics, and that you know politics don't have a place in these kinds of decisions on any level. And so I think he was reminding us or reminding the public that amidst these attacks on the Department of Justice, that this is not one case and this is not you know I mean there are implications in all of these
1: cases, but that there that these prosecutors, you know if you get rid of one, there are others, yeah again the faith in lawyers i mean i, I also should say you know we don't want to be too pollyanna-ish about about prosecutors there are plenty of prosecutors who do things not necessarily for political reasons but but that that do have a a less than completely pure motive they might they might want a a high profile case or they may want to send a broader message but i guess the The question to that end, is Trump actually saying things out loud that, you know, other officials have kind of just been quieter about saying?
0: Well, I mean, a couple of things about that. First of all, part of the scariness of all of this is we don't know what he's doing (laughs) behind the scenes. We know what he tweets. Yeah, that's true. Um, And we know. But I you know, there isn't any part of the problem with interfering with individual prosecutions is you don't know what happens if it happens. Mm -hmm. And so the president has been very willing to be vocal and public about this. But if he were to try to, you know, go to Rod Rosenstein, go to Mueller, make a medal in things, we wouldn't necessarily know that that happened. So that's one thing. Um, Second of all, the statements are not meaningless, because prosecutors are people. And part of the norms on the other side, that presidents don't say certain things, they don't do certain things, those are the things that he's breaking. And The reason why we have those norms, there are also actually some Department of Justice policies that came up after Watergate. Like, the president's not even supposed to call individual prosecutors. He's supposed to go through the attorney general. And all of that is to help protect prosecutors from being influenced, maybe even just by mistake. Mm -hmm. If you think the president wants you to do something and then therefore you were influenced to do it, that would be really bad. So we have these kind of policies that are made to protect that. So the president has completely just ignored those norms and has essentially made his view very, very clear about how he wants things to go.
1: So I think he would argue, though, and and has argued, oh, the norms were were just hiding what was really happening. Bill Clinton gets on Loretta Lynch's airplane and um, you know influences the investigation of Hillary Clinton. I I think you know the the president and his and his fans would say this was all this was all sugarcoating.
0: You know, I again, I don't think it's unprecedented that presidents try to exert control over their attorney general and exert control over um, prosecutions. I think it's happened. And I think, you know, some presidents have been more careful about that than others. And some attorney generals have been more careful about that than others. However, I, 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 I do think it's unprecedented this level of uh, um sustained attempt to do it. And that is important because on one level, it's important because prosecutors are human. And while these traditions are strong, and as I said, these institutions are strong, they also, you know, want to advance in the world and they want to do their job well and they want to please their, you know. So I think it's a concern when it's that, when the degree is that substantially different. Um, And second of all, he has also issued some of what he says is just sort of what I want. I want this to happen, I want that to happen. And some of his tweets involve direction. So, you know, I direct the attorney general. I again, I think largely the people in place, like Rod Rosenstein, Jeff Sessions, have largely managed him. But they haven't they haven't been immune to it entirely. I mean, even Rod Rosenstein has given in on certain occasions and been widely criticized for doing so. So he, um, for instance, agreed to have an uh, inspector general investigate um, the FBI and whether the FBI itself was politically motivated in um, survey in conducting surveillance of his um, of President Trump's campaign. He also turned over documents to Representative Devin Nunes, which was very controversial and unprecedented that yep. it would ever turn over documents in the midst of an investigation. So, yep. both of those things were things that. Uh, are contrary to the way prosecutors normally act. Now, I would argue that even so, Rod Rosenstein did that to appease a very angry, very, very angry president. And, And while still maintaining what's important about those traditions. And so he's made concessions, but he hasn't given in entirely. So those concessions do, though, show that this is different from what has happened before. I don't know of another situation where anything like that has ever
1: been. Public. Where active documents, uh, documents from an uh, active investigation have been turned over to yeah, Congress. Yeah, but I even
0: mean more broadly when when the norms or practices have been compromised at the direction of a president. Right. Uh, so that is different from
1: anything, even in the Nixon administration that right. happened before. What What happens when and if the president decides that he's finally had enough of Jeff Sessions? So again, you know, I think that the
0: Saturday Night Massacre is a pretty good um, precedent for this. So if he did this, there are a couple of different things that could happen. One, we have a Senate that has expressed that they would be pretty upset if that happened. So Jeff Sessions is a, a very well-respected prosecutor who's had a long history of, you um, Of connections with many of these politicians and has done a lot of, um, in the Republican Party's mind, good work, right, Mm -hmm. so that he has taken what he's supposed to do. And I think that many senators understand the importance of lawyers um, following these professional norms and protecting the rule of law and serving the government or serving the people. So, I think that they, that they would either um, they they might be less likely to be as compliant as they have been in the past about some of his other initiatives, and they might, as some of them have said, refuse to um, to confirm another attorney general unless that attorney general promises to protect Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. So. It will be interesting to see how it plays out, but I don't think it would necessarily play out in a way that he wants it to. In other words, simply you fire Jeff Sessions, you hire somebody else who then fires Robert Mueller right. and ends the investigation. Right.
1: I mean, the Mueller investigation is one aspect of things, but there are so many others. I mean, there's there there are the prosecutions of of Congressman Chris Collins and and Duncan Hunter, which the president has has criticized on, on Twitter and, and called political. And it just seems like the the pressure on the, the attorney general and other top justice officials has to be crushing.
0: Yeah, I mean he, in a way the thing about the Collins and Hunter prosecution is even crazier because he didn't call them political. He said that we should have that Jeff Sessions should have stopped them because they were interfering with a political agenda that he shared. So in the way he was saying they should have been more political. Yeah, that, in right. other words, we should have dropped <laughs> right, them for political yeah, advantage. So, allies. And that's what's so crazy because out of one side of his mouth, he's saying, you know, oh, the FBI was so unfair to me and so politically motivated when they started investigating my campaign and didn't investigate Hillary Clinton. But then he's saying, now I want the Department of Justice to do my bidding and be more political by not prosecuting these two congressmen who are hold important Republican seats. And we don't want those seats. We don't lose those seats to Democrats. And he really said that out loud. So it is that he in writing. Yes. (laughs) It's a very different view of the Department of Justice that he feels that it should serve him. And that is just that is unprecedented. There may be presidents who have violated these norms in the past and who have tried to get advantages by using their attorney general. And I can think of examples of that. But I can't think of an example of somebody who truly doesn't believe that there should be a political, in other words, not at all political, Department of Justice pursuing the law and the evidence to bring cases when they are fair
1: and just. So put on your your historian hat in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years how are, how are historians going to look back at this moment? I mean, we get caught up in the oh, he, he, the president tweeted this today. Oh, Jeff Sessions said that today. What what's the long view? What 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 do you think is going to happen? You know, I think
0: that this is another moment in which this this principle is going to be tested, like the Nixon Nixon one. I think when people um, come out on the other side, they're not going to be as willing to put faith in um, professionals as they were before. Because I think, again, even if these institutions, as I predicted, and these norms, as I predicted, hold up, I think that the threat has been Scary for many people. I think many people are watching this and thinking our whole democracy, this could be the point at which the democracy unravels. Now, some people think, oh, that's hysterical and we should stop saying that. But I do think the assault has been sustained enough that it's not without reason that people are beginning to have that concern. So I think the writing in of a more concrete kind of resolution may result from all of this. And I don't know what that will be, again, because part of the concern, as you said, you know, prosecutors can often do really bad things, you know, and people are right to notice that and right to try to put in place things that prevent them from doing that. So don't really want like fully
1: independent prosecutors because that's concerning. Yeah. So how then we do, get a million people who who are doing what they, you know using the the power of the state. It,
0: it's a it's a
1: little concerning. So yeah. we need
0: to balance this idea of independence. We've been talking about you know for this for for this whole time for this conversation. So important, but it needs to be balanced with accountability. So that how do we create that balance? And that was the question after Watergate, and everybody kind of came to the conclusion that we can create it. We don't have to mess with it so much because we have these prosecutors who will help save us. And I think after this, if we come out on the other side, that people may want some more concrete protections. And I don't know exactly what those will be, but I think that that would end up being a result of, of all of this.
1: Do you envision some... Th- there? Are- there have been various draft legislations yeah. protect protect Robert Mueller. You envision something more, more permanent, more long-lasting. I think it would be more permanent. Nothing to do
0: particularly with this special counsel, but. Um, uh, you know, basically something similar to the Ethics in Government Act that doesn't replicate some of the problems that the Ethics in Government Act had, which is sort of complicated to go into. But I think that we could come up with a different statutory scheme if we had time to breathe and a little bit of distance from all of this that really made sure that prosecutors were protected from the political branch such that they could do their job without allowing them complete free reign such that you know we worry a little bit about too much concentrated power in their hands. Are they, our country's all about checks and balances. And I do think prosecutors form one really, or the Department of Justice forms one really important check on the president and the White House. But we don't want to go so far as to give them so much power that they're
1: unchecked. So it's about creating that balance. Right, right. The, the norms. The norms are great, but it would be good to have them made a little bit more concrete. I think so. <laughs> I think they're gonna, there are a lot of people who will share that, that view. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much. This was really super interesting. It was really my pleasure. Okay, great. Thanks, Rebecca. On the Case is a podcast by Reuters. If you'd like to hear more, visit reuters.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Alison Frankel.